Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's episode, we thought we'd bring you a really special story that I think we can all learn from, especially right now during this Easter season while we're pondering concepts like redemption and new life. Our guest was Dave DeRocher, the executive director of the Other Side Academy in Salt Lake City. So if you're an especially up-to-date listener or you went to Restore last year, then you've already heard a little bit about the Other Side's story from Joseph Grenny, who's Dave's partner and the Academy's chairman. But with Dave, you're going to hear about the other side of the other side. By the time Dave was 38 years old, he'd been to prison four times for a total of 15 years. And then not long after his release, he was arrested again and was facing a 20-plus year prison sentence. But he got one last chance to turn his life around. We'll let Dave tell the rest of that story, but what I can tell you is that it's just as wild and as inspiring as you're imagining. Dave's story seems to teach us that while we like to tell dramatic stories of conversion and change, the reality is that there are many lives in which God seems to be doing a slow and patient and redemptive work. And the manner in which it happens and the timeline it's on can be just as surprising as Jesus' resurrection was to his disciples. That journey can be excruciating, but as Terrell and Fiona Gibbons are so quick to point out, God never seems to give up on anyone. It's clear that Dave is now doing exactly what he was meant to do all along, and there may have been no other way to get there. We are so incredibly grateful today for coming on. We really hope that his story resonates as powerfully with you as it did for us. Also, just a quick note about this episode. There's actually a little bit of swearing. So if you are sensitive to that or you have little ears who may be listening with you, we just want to make sure that you have a heads up. And with that, we'll jump right into the episode. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us here. It's truly an honor to have you. Thank you. Um, we're, we're super excited about this conversation. A lot of our listeners may have already heard of the Other Side Academy, but I, what they probably have not heard is your story. And so if you don't mind, I would love to sort of start at the beginning. Where are you from? How were you raised? How did, and sort of like just take us through uh, to sort of the, the beginning of this, of this particular journey. Yeah. So I was raised in Southern California. My mom and dad are still married today. They've been married for, I think, 58 years. Wow. Uh, dad was an alcoholic. Um, rode dirt bikes. That's how I learned to ride motorcycles. And what really happened was he would have his friends over on the weekends, pool table back in the seventies, Budweiser was the beer. Uh, He'd have his friends over and I'd run over to the refrigerator and grab the beer and run, bring them over and I'd pop it open and take the first drink and give them to his friends. And then at the end, right, I'd take them all and I'd take the last drink. How old did you say you were? I I was like probably 10 or 11 when I was doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and back in the seventies, it wasn't really looked down upon like it is today. Not that it was right. It just, you didn't, didn't get the recognition for what it, what, like it should have, because it was such a bad thing to be doing. Not long after that, uh, I'd be coming home from school and I would steal alcohol out of my dad's booze bottle and I'd replace it with water because he would never know that. Right. Mm. And I think he was coming home from working, having a drink, and then quickly realized he wasn't getting the desired effect he was looking for because the decanter was half full of water. And he realized I was, um, that conversation didn't go well. Uh, and I don't want to make excuses, but I, I also don't want, I don't know how I would have handled me either as, as parents. I was like, who, do you guys remember Dennis the Menace? Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. the Dennis Menace okay. on steroids. Yeah. I was the kind of kid who would wait around Christmas time for the mailman to drop mail off. And I'm no more than six or seven years old. And I'd go to the mailbox and steal the envelopes knowing there's cash in them. Oh, wow. Right. I was literally committing crimes before I ever took my first drink. It was just in my DNA, I think. I can't explain it. I don't know why I was that kind of a kid. I just was. But I was, I would be on restriction in my, I would literally be in prison as a kid, be in restriction in my room for summers on end in my room because my parents didn't know what to do with me. Um, There were times that dad would get very verbally abusive. You're no good. You're going to never, you know, I can't repeat uh, on the podcast some of the words that were used. And again, I was growing up in that household, so I didn't have anything to compare it to. That was just normal life for me as a kid. Not long after that, I was smoking pot between the ages of 13 and 14. I did my first line of cocaine. Where Um, did you get access? uh, My sister's boyfriend was the first one to ever give me uh, a line of cocaine. And this is not an exaggeration for me to say this. I thought I found God. So the way I was feeling about myself at that time, I started to feel like what I was being told by my dad, right? And bless his heart, we have a great relationship today. I don't ever want to put this on him. As I look back on why I started down that path, I can identify the things that went wrong. But when I became an adult, 
it was, you know, it's mm-hmm. no longer their fault. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I found God. I felt like I was on cloud nine. I was invincible. And in order to support my habit as a teenager, nobody was safe. I would manipulate. Neighbor. I was a little cute kid with blonde hair. And, you know, I need money for mom's birthday. I need this. I would manipulate neighbors and out of money. Uh, I would be upstairs in our house and I'd be waiting for the neighbors to pull out of the driveway and I'd go out our sliding glass door out over the block wall into their house and steal whatever I could. I had a newspaper out as a teenager and I'd go to the na- uh, to the houses and I'd knock on the doors to collect uh, you know $4.50 a month for the Herald Examiner and they're not home and I'd break into their house. Steal jewelry, cash, whatever I could find to support my coke habit. Could wow. you imagine navigating your teenage years? It's hard enough when you're not doing drugs. Yeah. Uh, got in my dad's wallet and got the safe combination and stole thousands of dollars from my dad. All of this is going on and so much more to support a coke habit, taking off in the middle of the night to ride my bike down to the drug dealer's house to pick up. Uh, actually got busted in a bank drive through on my bike, forging my dad's check. Wow. Right? Wow. That's just a handful of things, but that's the kind of kid I'd become. Wow. And as as I continued through high school, I would, I mean, I was hooked the whole time. And I would go to school and I'd have a little vial of cocaine in my pocket, right? And when I was, I'd sit in the back of the class and while the teacher was up at the board, whether it was math or science or history, whatever it was, I'd take that Coke and I'd pour it between the pages of my school book. And then I'd pull the big pen apart like that one right there, mm-hmm. pull the cartridge out. And then I'd just lean over and I'd snort Coke in class wow. while wow. in high school. Wow. wow. It got that bad. And then uh, graduated high school. Had a child while I was in high school, got a girl pregnant before that, had an abortion. So I'm dealing with all these things, you know, as a teenager. And I was nowhere near ready for all these life challenges yeah. that I was bringing on myself. Did your did your parents, teachers, other adults in your life know that this was going on or oh, did yeah. you hide it pretty effectively? Yeah, okay. and, and that's the funny thing. I was, my mom and dad, you know, caught on because all the things I was doing and telling me I was a drug addict. But again, it's difficult to tell the teenager he's a drug addict because you're not mature enough yet to even understand what a drug addict is. In my mind, a drug addict has a needle in his arm. They're homeless. That's a drug addict to me. And as I look back on it, that's what I thought back then. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have the problem. You did. You know, that's yeah. what I thought back then. Mm-hmm. But when I graduated high school, right, somehow I managed to get through because it just wasn't very difficult. And I was smart enough to, to you know, be able to, to get by. I graduated from cocaine to methamphetamine. And that really is where the wheels fell off. Not that they weren't loose and wobbling before that, but I went from coke to meth. It was cheaper. It lasted longer. I, and I went off the deep end. And I never set out, and I just want to shake your hand. I never set out when, you know, we graduated from high school with my friends and they said, well, we're going to go off to college. Well, I'm going to go be a drug dealer. That's not how it went down. I would buy some and sell some, buy a little more, sell a little more, uh, buy a little more, sell a little more. And then I didn't realize I had an entrepreneurial yeah. gene in me, uh, nor did I back then, but I would buy more, sell more. And then pretty soon I was buying large quantities of meth and selling it. And I started making a considerable amount of money, right? For, you know, a kid. Yeah. Adult by then. Yeah. Um, But along with that came weapons and guns. Now it's guns and drugs and money and women and power and all those things became the new intoxicant. And then I started getting arrested. And uh, when I got arrested, got arrested a few times uh, for minor stuff. But when I got arrested the first time for sales, transportation, large quantity of meth and firearms, I went to prison. And my first prison term was two years. Went to prison for two years, got out and got stayed out for 59 days and went back to prison for five years. Got out, stayed out for 60 days. So at least I'm staying out longer. 59, yeah. 160. <laughs> went to prison for a six-year term, got out, got busted again, went to prison for a 10-year term. So it was a two-year prison term, a five-year prison term, a six-year prison term, and a 10-year prison term. Back to back to back. And it's not an exaggeration to say the day I got out of prison, I was on my way back. Literally, there were times I'd get picked up from prison. We'd be driving home for wherever, wherever I was at in California, and I'd pull the bag out from underneath the seat. Whoever's picking me up, we'd be getting high on the way home. And I'd pick right up where I left off. Okay, so did let me you, ask. Oh, go ahead. Please. Did you feel out of control? Like, <clears throat> did it feel like you still had your you were living the life you wanted to live, or was there some feeling of having lost control at that point? Um, you know, when you live in that world, going to prison is almost like a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. So I go in. I, you know, burpees and pushups and hit the weights, come out looking, you know, kind of big and, you know, do curls for the girls and, you know, come out and have the party and, you know, pick one. That was, that's really how it was. So that be the, really the lifestyle became the intoxicant. So I don't, I don't know if I felt like I was out of control yet. That was coming. 
because there wasn't a lot a lot of violence yet that was coming over the next few terms and then the way i was living my life in prison in california you know i've got all the ink right but some of the stuff you can't see i'm completely covered you have to earn that uh emphasis on the word earn right in prison you can't just get political tattoos without putting in the work. And that means hurting people, whether it's riots, whether it's cell fights, whether it's stabbing somebody, that's the way you earn it. So I started to drink my own Kool-Aid while I was incarcerated, thinking that I was about something because I'm willing to do these things. And really all it made me was a coward. So the lifestyle really became, uh, again, the intoxicant, the money, the power, the, the women, all of those things. Did you have access to drugs in prison? Yes. Really? And, you know, people think there's a lot of drugs in prison. There are times when there's a lot of drugs in prison. There's times when there's nothing on the yard. But if you're just your average Joe and you're just there and there are drugs on the yard, you're not going to get any anyway. You have to have made a name for yourself. Then when I got the keys to the yard and I became the shot caller, if somebody white, right, which is my my group mm-hmm. of people comes in, I automatically get some. And if you bring drugs in and I don't get any, you're going to, something bad's going to happen to you. So I'd work my way up. Uh, uh, kind of the the chain yeah. of command, if you will. This is an informal hierarchy among- It is, Indians. yeah. The, the politics in the prison system is unlike anything you could imagine, particularly in a state like California that is ran exclusively by the inmates. I, I think I mentioned earlier yeah. the Sudanios and Nortenios, which are your Northern and Southern Hispanics, your Bloods and your Crips, which are normally your Blacks, uh, the two main gangs, then your Whites, White Power, Skinheads. Everybody fighting for the yard, fighting for control, and fighting for respect. The word you hear the most in there is respect. I mean, just think about it. We're fighting each other over respect, and we don't even have enough respect for ourselves to not go. People in prison don't even know what the word means when it comes to respect. If you can't respect yourself, right, and you're a drug addict, and you're committing crimes, and you're going in prison, and you're demanding it from other people, how backwards is that? Yeah. But I didn't see it like that then. So prison term after prison term after prison term, and then after my tenure prison term, uh, got out right back to the same lifestyle at a house in Huntington Beach, California, upstairs, weighing up drugs uh, in that room. And I look out the window and there's a helicopter. And I've actually taken Joseph Grenny and Tim Stay back to this location. There's a helicopter hovering super, super high in the sky. It's just hovering there. A couple hours later, I'll look out the window and usually the helicopters are floating around the town patrolling the neighborhood. It's way, way up there, just sitting there. A couple hours later, I look out and it's still sitting there and I'm getting ready to leave. And I thought, nah, it can't be for me. I leave the house, I get my car, I take off and the cops were everywhere. Huntington Beach, PD, Fountain Valley, Garden Grove, parole. And I had told everybody I knew that I'm never stopping. I don't want to go back to prison for the rest of my life. I knew two-year term, five-year term, six-year term, 10-year term. The next time I go down, I'm going down forever. So I took the police on a high-speed chase. Uh, I had total wanton disregard for public safety. I'm going up on sidewalks. I'm going through red lights. I'm displacing vehicles uh, that are in my way. I'm trying to get to a bridge in Huntington Beach to throw everything out the window into the water. And if they find it, they got to prove that's what I threw. I mean, that's how crazy I was in my mind, right? And throughout that high-speed chase, the helicopter had come all the way down, shining its spotlight in the car, the sirens, the commands to pull over, the helicopter, the stereo, just everything. You, can ima- you can't even imagine, but if you can, close your eyes, put yourself in that driver's seat at that time. And I decided I am not stopping. I, don't, I know if I stop, I'm going back to prison forever. So I come to a roadblock and it, and it, at Atlantic and Magnolia, right? Magnolia, I'm going south, Atlanta, I'm going to make a left. And there are cops at that intersection. And I have a decision to make. Do I stop and let them arrest me or do I go through that roadblock and hope that they kill me? And I opted for B. I wanted to commit suicide by cop. I just, it was better than going back to prison for the rest of my life. So I went through that roadblock and displaced the cop cars and the one closest behind me did the pit maneuver and spun me out of control and pushed my car up on an embankment. They commenced to pulling me out of that vehicle and I got one of the worst beatings of my life. And one of the last things I remember hearing was, stop, stop, we're going to kill him. They had pulled me out. They had me in handcuffs. I'm on the ground and they're beating me. I put everybody's life in jeopardy. I had it coming, even though they shouldn't have done it. I still deserved it. Um, When I went to court for the first time, I was looking at 29 years. So I already mentioned two, five, six, 10, 29 was, you know, pretty sobering. Yeah. So you're in your late thirties, maybe at this point. I'm in my late thirties at this point. Uh, During the next six months, maybe a year, some of the ancillary charges had fallen off. Sales, transportation, high-speed chase, all of that assault with a deadly weapon, using the car as the 
the vehicle, uh, the, the, the weapon, all those things stuck. And I was looking at 22 years and Judge Pacheco told me in no uncertain terms that you are, Mr. DeRocher, you're getting 22 years, no matter what you decide to do, you continue to fight this case. You're getting 22 years or you can take it to trial. You're going to lose. You're getting 22 years. So I'm tired. I'm broken. And really for the first time in my adult life, I was scared. I'm like, mm-hmm. I just lived many, many years of my adult life in prison. And now I'm going to go back there and, you know, probably die there. Because I've never really come home on my date. I always pick up more time, lose good time. I know if I go up on a 22-year prison sentence, I'm going to a four-yard in California, which is a lifer yard. Just put yourself on a, a, lar- a yard full of people with 20 years or longer, some who have life. They don't care. There's nothing to lose anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's no incentive to do the right thing. So I knew what my future looked like. And there's a place called Delancey Street. It's been around for 50 years. Uh, there's five of them in the country. And I wrote them a letter. I had written them a letter. They refused to accept me. Mm. I wrote them a letter this time. And during the interview, they did accept me. And when I went to the judge, the judge said, oh, hell no. Mr. (laughs) DeRocher, you are not Delancey Street material. I will never send you to Delancey Street. I told you already. I'm going to tell you again. You're getting 22 years and I'll get out of my courtroom. And I went back to my cell and I was tired. I was scared. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a chance. And I wrote the judge a letter. Four pages on legal pad, front and back. And never once did I tell him he was wrong in his assessment of me because he wasn't. But I said, Your Honor, what do you got to lose? I've been to prison four times already. It didn't work. Not that it's intended to because prisons aren't intended to to, mm-hmm. to work. But if you let me go, uh, one of two things will happen. Either I'll get kicked out or I'll split and you can lock me up for the rest of my life. Or the next time you see me is because I'm coming back to say thank you for the opportunity. And I sent the letter to him and I pled guilty on paper. I said, I'm going to take my chances. I'm guilty of everything. You, you got me, right? Please let me go to Delancey Street and change my life. And about six weeks later, I went to court. And I don't know if you guys remember what a phone booth looks like, yeah. right? Because yeah. we're you know kind of aged out now. <laughs> yeah. uh, but smaller metal cage. I'm in ankle irons, waist irons, handcuffs, jumpsuit. And I'm in this little metal cage. And, and Judge Pacheco said, Mr. DeRocher, against my better judgment, I'm going to give you the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm letting you go to Delancey Street, but you're pleading guilty to your charges today and you're signing a deal for 22 years. When you get kicked out or when you split, I've got you for the rest of your life. Now sign. And I did. And I almost didn't make it to Delancey Street. There was a girl waiting for me outside the jail. I jumped in her car. We drove across the street to the block. If you're from Orange County, you know what that is. Mm -hmm. And uh, we read Bible verses in the car for a while. That's a joke. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, like oh, okay, what I I we got to go on a tangent. Like, yeah. <laughs> I came back to the jail and my girlfriend was there, jumped in her car and we mm-hmm. took off. My parents had come all the way from Las Vegas to pick me up to make sure I got from jail to Delancey Street. Took off with Jennifer and hours go by and I realized that if I don't go to Delancey Street, I'm never going to make it. And I called my mom. I'll never forget the phone call. She was in hysterics. Yeah. She was crying and screaming at the same time. She knew what I was doing, right? Typical Dave. And uh, when the crying subsided, she said, you have 15 minutes to get back to this parking lot. They had stayed at the Four Seasons or someplace right down the street from the jail. And your dad, and, otherwise your dad and I are leaving and going back to Nevada. And in 15 minutes, I got there and they took me to Delancey Street. And I was like six or seven hours late to Delancey Street. And they didn't have to accept me, but they did. Oh my gosh. So, Delancey Street is two years long, but you know, it's fascinating. It just goes to show you drugs aren't the problem. I want to reemphasize that drugs are never the problem. The behaviors are. I've been in jail for a year and a half fighting my case. I'm not high. I leave and I'm already making bad decisions. It's not drugs. If nothing else, I was a bad decision addict, Mm. right? Wow. Just continually making poor decisions uh, based on chasing the feel good. Can I? I, Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to ask, during all this time, did you have any particular like moral framework? And did you have a belief in God that might have gotten you some sort of moral framework? Or were you just like, anything goes, or did you feel like you, what you were doing is wrong, but you were doing it anyway? Do you know what I mean? D, all the above. Okay. My mom was Christian. My grandparents were Christian. My dad was not. I had went to church many times as a kid, but didn't have that family support. It just didn't exist, right? My mom believed in God. I didn't know what I believed. My dad, I remember when I was younger saying he was atheist and I had to try to figure out what that meant. So I didn't grow up in a religious household, but I'll tell you what my relationship with God, it it really grew Mm -hmm. over the years. So I get to Delancey Street. All I have to do is stay two years and I will have beat a 22-year prison sentence. The judge suspended 22 years over my head. You get kicked out or you split, I've got you. And and that's what I told him in the letter. You know, you can lock me up for the rest of my life, plus whatever new charges I have. 
Yeah. But give and, me. A sh- and was that sincere? Like, did you want? Did you want to change your life, or did you want to not? Start I wanted out of jail. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I didn't even know what. Cha- no one knows what change looks like okay. when you ask for it, right? Yeah. But yeah. that's a great question because I know when I'm writing the letter, I'm begging for help. I'm begging for change. Mm-hmm. But what I really wanted was a change of address. I'm in jail. I'm going to prison forever. Get, one more. Can I get out of this situation? Right. Yeah. And even when I did, what I do, I jump in the girl's car, then I come back and my girlfriend's there and I jump in her car. That's the kind of guy I was at yeah. that time. So even when I had a, the chance of a lifetime, I was ruining it. Yeah. Barely made it to Delancey Street. Had to stay two years. Stayed for eight and a half years in a program. Let that sink in. I stayed in a program for eight and a half years. Now, most people go to programs for 30, 60, or 90 days, and I I could have graduated at two years. I stayed a third year because I realized I needed a little more time. Change takes time. doesn't happen overnight. And then during that third year, Mimi Silbert, the president of Delancey Street, came down from San Francisco, and we met, and she asked if I'd stay five more years. And I thought, I've already been here for roughly three years. You're asking me to stay five more? She said, yeah. As a student? As a student. Or, wow. Now, I didn't know what her plans were, and, I, and I'm going to elaborate a little bit on that here in a moment. But I closed my eyes, and I thought about my life prior to Delancey Street. I'm probably 40, 41 at the time. And I said, yeah, I'll stay. And uh, about six months later, she flew me to San Francisco and asked me if I'd run the LA facility. Oh. So here's a guy that had been a drug addict his whole life, in and out of prison, now she's asking me to run the Los Angeles Delancey Street, 250 residents living on property, 15 vocational training schools that generated all of the revenue. And I thought, well, how the hell am I going to do that? She said, figure it out. Those are her words. Wow. Figure it out. I wouldn't be asking you if I didn't have faith that you could do it. So I ran the Los Angeles facility for the last five years that I was there. It was hands down the best decision I ever made, not just in going, but in staying. I truly believe that the balm for our wounds is service. I did a TED Talk back in 2016, and one of the statements I made in the TED Talk was, I spent the first half of my life killing people, and I'm going to spend the rest of it helping them live. And I'm going to, I'm going to stick to that for the rest of my life, because it's about balancing the scales. If you look at my life before Delancey Street, scales of justice, the two dishes, the chains, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Those who are listening can't see this, but this was all the bad I'd done. I couldn't tip them any farther, yeah. right? And what I learned in Delancey Street, helping people, helping people, helping people, giving back, giving back. At three and a half or four years there, I knew I could go outside and live my life the way I was living it there. I knew I could practice what I had learned in Delancey Street in the real world successfully. I stayed another four four or five years and tipped those scales in the other direction and I'm never going to look back. It isn't just drug addicts that need to learn that. It's everybody that Mm -hmm. needs to understand that part of your life has to be about service and giving back. Mm -hmm. And it will change even the best of lives and make them better Mm. and the worst of lives and make them good. It's fascinating how giving of yourself and helping other people is literally the balm for all of our wounds. Did it, did it replace the high? Like, was it that you didn't feel like you needed that? Is that what really? Yes. Um, Helping people became the new intoxicant. I didn't have a skill. I'm not a carpenter. I'm not a culinary artist. I don't cut hair. I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't have anything. I was out of the workforce for decades. Um, but people, I've, I found my skill, people, helping people and getting them through this process became just my new passion and my new love. And anyway, when I left Delancey Street and went out and got a job in Southern, uh, in Southern California doing heavy equipment operation, right? It's, it's a funny story. I, Bob Burkich, who owns Burkich Construction, did a, a project at my facility in Los Angeles. We became friends and he said, someday when you graduate, I want to hire you. Oh. I said, cool. So when I did, he hired me. He paid the $500 and put me in the Teamsters Union, right? And I was making $30 an hour. And I was like on cloud like $30 an hour. My God, what am I going to do with all that money? I forgot <laughs> it was in Southern California. Right. <laughs> I had been out of the workforce for decades. The last time I had a job, it was like seven twenty five an hour was minimum wage. Yeah. Right. So it was a lot of money per hour. It wasn't a lot of money in relation to what I was making selling drugs, but it was a lot of money legally. And a couple things happened. I realized how much I loved going to work and standing on my own two feet, but I hated my job. It had no meaning and it had no purpose. Underground pipeline construction, it's dirty, it's wet, it's muddy. It's anyway, I went up to the Bakken in the oil fields in North Dakota and made what I refer to as stupid money. <laughs> Here's a guy, again, been out of the workforce for decades, and I'm up there making 15, 17 grand a month. Oh, wow. I called it stupid money, and I'm putting all this money in the bank, right? And two things were happening. I was having an affair with my checkbook, 
Um, and I realized that making money is fun, but saving lives was rewarding. I missed the people part. So I came back to Southern California, did some presentations around some small programs, and then a God shot happened. Joseph Grenny and Tim Stay entered my life. And uh, Joseph Grenny is a New York Times bestselling author, Crucial Conversations, uh, Crucial Accountability, Change Anything, and he wrote the book, The Influencer. And in that Influencer book, he interviewed Mimi Silbert 20 years ago. That's how our intersections came together. And then a couple of his sons got into drugs, and he said, that's it. I want to bring a replication of Delancey Street to Utah. Joseph Grenny and Tim Stay and a number of others went out to San Francisco to Delancey Street and they went through the replication training and they left there two days later and said, wow, we can probably raise the money to do this, but who's going to run it? And that's how we met. And it was literally a God shot because I had left. Mm -hmm. uh, Charlotte Baker, who was in Delancey Street for 38 years, had left. They did a reverse search on LinkedIn, found Charlotte Baker, flew oh, out here no to Utah. Oh, wow. She said, I can't do it, but I know one person who can. And that's how Joseph Granny, Tim Stay, and I met. Wow. This is not an exaggeration. They reach out. We meet on the phone. They say, we're coming out to Los Angeles. Can we meet you? I said, sure. We meet at LA Live at Fleming's Restaurant in LA. We sit down at a restaurant. I'm looking at Joseph and Tim. And I said, don't ask me a damn question. Who in the hell are you? What's the genesis of thought behind this? What makes you think you can? And why would you want to? Who's first? And I interviewed them. <laughs> and about an hour later, right, after each one of them told me their story, I knew I was in the presence of great men, really, really great men. And uh, a couple hours later, when we were all done, they said, are you willing to come to Utah and help us get this started? I said, not if you quit in six months when it gets hard. Mm -hmm. And it will. And that was almost eight years ago when we met. And now we have the Other Side Academy in Salt Lake, 105 students living on property, 20 staff members, hundreds of graduates. Uh, we've scaled the model into Denver, and uh, we have about 50 students and staff living there. And the, just been, you know, I mentioned earlier, going to Delancey Street and staying eight and a half years was the best decision I ever made up until coming to Utah to help start the Other Side oh. Academy. Mm. Oh, had you ever been to Utah before? I had driven through. Here's a funny okay. thing, right? It's a God shot, <laughs> yeah. right? Because there's a lot of them in my story. I'm living in the Dakotas. I'm in the Bakken in the oil fields. I'm dating a girl in Southern California. So I would drive home every four or five weeks and spend a week home, right? And as I'm driving down the 15, going through Utah, looking at Salt Lake City, going, wow, that's a beautiful city. Look at the mountains in the background and then go through St. George. Oh. And I'm like, Utah is really beautiful. So I'm driving back and forth three or four times during that five or wow. six months yeah. and thought, if there was ever a place, and here I am. Wow. And those are the thoughts that was going through my head as I'm going up and down the 15 freeway. Back and forth from the from the Bakken to Southern California. That's amazing. Wow. So that oh was my, my experience in Utah. Yeah. Do you feel like looking back, would you say that that this is your life mission? This is definitely my life mission mission. And I and I have to say this because I think it's important. I am so I was doing a presentation in St. George a couple months ago. After the presentation, the three speakers were sitting on stools and someone asked, Dave, do you have any regrets? Would you do anything differently? And it was a great question, and the answer is no. I am so grateful that I was a drug addict. I mean, I, it sounds funny, right? But I am so grateful I was a drug addict. And I'm so grateful that I went to prison because that's where the hell I belonged. They needed to put me in prison to keep the community safe for me. And it saved my life. I am grateful for all of that. Even more so, there are things I did that I won't mention in my story that if I got caught for, I'd be in prison for the rest of my life. God had a plan. I wasn't aware of it then. I got busted for the shit I was supposed to get busted for. I got away with the stuff I was supposed to get away with to be sitting in this room with both of you today. Had I gotten in trouble for the things I got away with, I wouldn't be here. I'd be doing life in prison. I absolutely know unequivocally without a shadow of a doubt that God had his hand in everything. And if I didn't have those life experiences, I wouldn't have the ability to do the work that I'm doing today. Because I think I mentioned to you both earlier, if you don't have lived experience, you don't have a clue what I've been through. That's why Delancey Street was so successful. It was ran exclusively by ex-drug addicts and ex-felons who had been through the process and it changed their lives. That feedback resonated with me. Having done everything I did gave me the experience, the I'll call it the EQ, the experience uh, quotient mm -hmm. to be able to do that. I'm work that the work that I'm doing right now. And without that life experience, I, I, I couldn't wow. do this. Yeah. So I'm curious if you see that 
sort of divine hand working in most people's lives that way that it's just it's really easy for me i mean and hearing this i feel like i shouldn't even be talking at all but when hard times come up when things when when things really don't seem to be going according to plan to just see it as an aberration in what should be a much uh, a much more straightforward path but it seems i'm i'm hearing you and i'm feeling maybe inspired like all these things that are even just in the back of my mind right now that are bugging me that are really hard it seems at least from my perspective maybe that's part of a that's part of a journey that's supposed it, to happen. It is. I tell students all the time. I tell my staff, and I tell other people that I coach and mentor. Embrace the hard. Look, life is not never going to be easy. Life will never be easy. It will always be hard. Choose your hard. Mm. Look, being married is hard. Being divorced is hard. Choose your hard. Being a drug addict was hard. Being sober is hard. Mm. Choose your hard. Being financially responsible is hard. Not being financially responsible is hard. Choose your hard. Life will never be easy. Choose wisely. I tell people all the time, including myself, I embrace the challenge today. Nothing will ever compare to the stuff I already put myself through. Nothing that's happened has ever compared to all of the chaos and turmoil and <clears throat> torment that I put myself through. Um, so every, every, every challenge now is I, I just embrace it. And I tell other people, embrace it. You know what I mean? Embrace the hard times because that's when we grow and that's when we learn. Yeah. Wow. So all those things that are gnawing in the back of your head, embrace that shit. I love that. Excuse oh my the gosh, language. I love Thank it. You. Embrace it. There's our social right? media quote. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and challenge it, challenge it and work through it and work through the next one yeah. and work through the next one. Because when we're done in 50 years, when you're done, you're going to look back. We look at all the challenges in both of your lives. The reason why you are who you are today is because you fought those challenges and you overcame them. God has a, it's a, it's amazing. There are so many more things. It was Thanksgiving, 2015. Joseph Grenny invites us to, uh, to Provo to go to the movies. I have a handful of students at Tosa. We were brand new. I'm driving a Toyota Tacoma. I'm in the driver's seat. Lola, who runs my Denver facilities in the passenger seat. I have three students in the back. The movie's over. We're heading back to Salt Lake. I'm on the 15 freeway. I'm doing 75 miles an hour. Uh, I look up, which I was already doing, but I must have looked. And there's a car parked in the middle of the freeway with the lights out. I I would have hit it head on. I swerved to miss it. And I roll my truck. Never even hit the brakes. 75 miles an hour. The truck is rolling across the freeway. In my head, it is the loudest thing I've ever been through. The airbags are going off. The glass is breaking. And I'm thinking to myself... This is how it's going to end. Now, you don't realize you've had that thought until you survive. The truck is rolling and rolling and rolling. And in my head, I'm rolling across the freeway into oncoming traffic. There's a divider. But that's what it felt like, right? And I'm I'm waiting for the truck to just impale us and kill us all. And we landed on all four wheels. And I'm looking at Lola. All the air. It was just a crazy moment. We survived. We get out of the truck. It's 10 o'clock at night. It's freezing cold. It's Thanksgiving evening. We walk over to the side and in front of that car that was parked in the freeway with no lights on was a big, huge chemical container that had fallen off a truck. That car had hit it. They had gotten out of it and moved over to the side of the freeway. I call Joseph. He comes. But all the other cars that had gone with us, my other staff members, roll up on the accident and realize it's us. Um, it was a crazy, crazy moment in my life, right? We shouldn't have survived and all of us walked away. Why? Right? So I take that moment. And there's been others throughout these last seven or eight years here that God had to have a hand in this. And it's made a believer of me. When we were fighting the city to stay open because we're not ran by clinicians, uh, we had to fight the city. And our neighbors came out in droves and told the county and told the city, we love them. We want them there. And we beat this. We Anyway, we got wow. a whole nother licensure, right? Uh, they, outside they like rezoned of, it for they you rezoned because it. the neighbors wanted you. That's Absolutely. so amazing. So many things like that have happened. Wow. Um, wow. Can we can we go back yeah. to one thing? I want to I want to talk about this the mentorship a little bit more because I we've talked before on the podcast about this concept of a wounded healer and how like that that really is such a powerful dynamic when you're when you're able to have a connection with someone who has been where you are yeah. and who who has yeah you know, moved on. And, and so can you just talk about that a little bit more? Like, was that where your change of heart really happened? Cause it sounds like you got to Delancey street still kind of like two years is better than 22 years. So that here I it. am, but like something <clears throat> happened to you yeah. in, in that, that handful of years. Like yeah. what, what, what was it? Like when do you, is there a moment, like, do you remember a moment where you realized this is feeding my soul in a way that 
drugs didn't like when, when did you really choose to start taking responsibility and and like you and you genuinely wanted okay. to be different there's a couple answers in there we have okay. time right okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um when i got to delancey street there had been people in my life on the streets or in jail and prison you're bumping into people all the time and you become friends quote unquote there are no friends when you're a drug addict and a criminal they're just associates but you think they're friends then that you lose contact with and you don't know what happened to them i get to delancey street and i saw people there that had been there for years that i wondered Holy cow, Jim, Bob, Steve, Lisa, whatever the name was. How long have you been here? And they were completely different people. Mm. Immediately, I'm like, if he can do it, it looks like he's doing it. I can do it. Perceived similarities, right? And I didn't even recognize it then. I just recognized how it felt. My goodness, I thought you were in prison for the rest of your life. So many people when I got there, I knew. So many people got there after I did that knew me and I was able to do the same thing. And then the funny thing happened. My handle in Delancey Street for the first couple of years was Dinner Date Dave. <laughs> so I know it's funny, right? Um, but there's a piece of paper like this one in front of you. Uh -huh. And the brand new students who get there, it's called maintenance. They eat dinner in two shifts because there were so many people. First shift, second shift. Every morning, Monday through Friday, I'd go to the blacktop and I'd write down, I want to eat dinner with Branson. Mm -hmm. right? Uh, first shift or second shift. And the next day I want to eat dinner with you. And the next day I want to eat dinner with you. And they dubbed me dinner date Dave. And why did I do it? Because every day I get to sit down with a new person and tell them my experiences in Delancey street. And they dubbed me and they were, it was kind of funny dinner date Dave, dinner date Dave. <laughs> but everybody wanted to have dinner with Dave because yeah. I was positive. I was giving him good stuff, positive, giving him good stuff. And it fed my soul, wow. right? It fed my soul. And I started to fall in love with the fact that I can influence and impact other people for good, just like I did for bad. Right. Yeah. And the more I did it, the more it became who I was and I couldn't oh. get enough. Yeah. And then I stayed and I became the crew boss over that whole thing. And then I became a house barber, which was nothing more than I was in charge of everybody. Then I became the, the facilitator, like I mentioned earlier, and oversaw all the enterprises and all the people. And it was a wonderful opportunity to just continue to give back. Mm -hmm. And I know now I've more than balanced the scales. I've tipped them in the other direction. And I'm going to keep tipping because helping people is where it's at. Yeah. Wow. Have you at the, the other side academy tweaked the Delancey Street model at all? Delancey Street, uh, I owe it my life, right? I don't know if I can uh, overstate that. If it wasn't for Delancey Street, I'd be 17 and a half years into a 22-year oh prison sentence right now, and I wouldn't be here. I literally owe it my life. and uh, But it doesn't mean it was a perfect place, nor is the other side academy. So yes, we have made a lot of improvements in the model, and we continue to. We travel all over the world. I was sharing with you earlier, we were in uh, uh, New Delhi, India, speaking at the World Federation of Therapeutic Communities, meeting other organizations. And we travel all over the place, going from program to program to program to learn what other people are doing and what their successes or failures look like and why. Wow. So we can get better. Mm. Tell us some of the uh, basic principles, like rules that you may have that you might not assume would be rules. You know, if you are a student at the Other Side Academy, yeah. my average student's been arrested 25 times. I'm not making that number up. It just sounds like a nice round number, right? 25. Yeah. But the average student, it was like 25.6. I have some who've been arrested 50 times, handful that have never been arrested, but the aggregate total was about 25.6. I don't care what anybody thinks when they're listening to this. No, nobody got arrested for singing too loud in the church choir. Um, none of them. <laughs> nobody got pulled out of the U or BYU for being a straight A student. Hey, you, come here, you straight A student. We're going to arrest you. We got arrested because we were liars. We were cheaters. We were thieves. We were manipulators. We were self-centered, self-seeking, violent emotionally, violent verbally, violent physically. Welcome to my demographic. Now, most people today won't say any of those things because, again, they're afraid to hurt people's feelings. But that's who I was and that's who my students are. They're not going to jail because they're doing the right thing. They're breaking into people's homes and stealing their weapons and then using those in the commission of crimes. They're breaking into your car, stealing your wallet and running your credit through the roof and destroying what you work so hard for, breaking into your house and stealing your jewelry. That's what we do. So if we don't tell them who they are, what the hell is there to change? We're not going to bring them there and, you know, and pat them on the back and tell them it's not your fault. You're a drug addict. And because you're a drug addict, you have a green light to commit crimes. That is not our model. We're going to tell you the truth about who you are. We're going to talk about the things you've done. So the principles in Delancey Street are learn to tell the truth, learn to be accountable, and learn to have integrity. 
and everybody listening to this, you know, I can ask you what the definition of integrity is. It's doing the right thing when no, no matter who's mm-hmm. looking, being the same person in every room you walk into, not being different with your wife and different with your kids and different with your, your, your bishop and different with your boss, being the same person in every room because you have integrity. You don't have to be somebody else and giving them the time they need to learn those new behaviors. Because again, we are liars and cheaters and thieves and when you're our population, it's that on steroids. And when you come to us, we read right through that and we're going to call you on it. So a day in the life at the other side academy is get up, go to work, tell the truth, have a good attitude, go to bed, get up, go to work, mm. tell the truth. Why is that important? Let me tell you why it's important. May I? Yeah, Please. Yeah. I go all over the country and I do presentations in jails and prisons, right? Sometimes I have 25 people in a, in a, in a chapel, at a jail or prison. Sometimes I have 500 in the auditorium and I'll ask everybody in that room, who here knows how to work? And all their hands go up. You're all liars. And they look at me, but I can get away with that because I am them. They already know my story. I'm just farther removed. If you knew how to work, that's where you'd be. Where are you today? In jail, in prison. Well, it looks to me like that's what you know how to do today. And besides, what do you do for a living? And they'll tell me, well, I'm a carpenter. What are you building in your cell? How about you? What do you do for a living? Well, I'm a mechanic. Changing a transmission today? How about you, Bob? I'm a culinary artist. Well, all you're doing is cooking a top ramen in your cell. You have, you guys have skills, but you don't know how to apply them. I love what you you were you were maybe this is before we started recording where you talked about like <clears throat> this intense love like this works because you love the students. My goodness, like you, there is you have a real relationship, and so I can see how that kind of tough love where you're you're that honest with each other is so meaningful because it's coming from a real yeah. place of love. Just look, you guys, my staff and myself, we live on property. It is a residential program. And if you don't want to live on property, this isn't the place for to work at. Why is that important? Because the basically it's important because if you have kids and you're a mom and a dad and you don't come home, your kids do whatever the hell they want. If you're in a program and you have 25-year-olds, 35-year-olds, 45-year-olds that live like they're 12 and there's never anybody there, they're going to do what they want. We live on property with them. They see the commitment. They see that everybody there is just like them, just farther removed. The buy-in happens immediately. I remember yeah. I remember Joseph mentioning that almost none of the students had fathers who were very involved in their lives growing up. Yeah, very and true. it like it felt like what you've created mm-hmm. is this environment of structure that a it healthy is. childhood would yeah. would include. Yeah. So I, I I think that's that's really interesting that that's something you have to learn and heal from if mm-hmm. you don't get it at first. So but I want to push back on one thing and I explain this a little bit to me. I feel like I feel like we have, there's this surge to talk about shame and woundedness. And and I can see that you're, you're laughing. That's sort of like this coddling. There is something coddling about that. Mm-hmm. But but it also feels like for some people that's been very effective in helping them be productive. And and so where is it that this was such an extreme lifestyle that or like, why, why not coddle? Why not validate and say, it isn't your fault. You had a really, a really difficult childhood. You didn't, yeah. you didn't have what you needed and you were in so much pain of course this is where you turned and of course it became an addiction and of course it felt like you didn't have choices how how is that not how is that not healing for someone and trapping them in this lifestyle i think it is i think it works for a lot of people it didn't work for me it didn't work for the majority of my students is there a place for it absolutely Mm -hmm. but let me explain something i needed to feel shame i had three kids i did not raise When people go, oh my God, it's not your fault. You were a drug addict. Don't shame him. I needed to feel shame to own my shit. I was a criminal dealing drugs. Mom or dad who have kids could have bought the dope, brought it home, dropped it. The baby could have ate it. This just happened in Utah County recently. Could have ate it and died. I needed to feel shame over my decisions. I didn't have the best upbringing. I had good parents. They made some mistakes. I'm not responsible for the cards that are dealt to me when I'm a kid. I am responsible to reshuffle the deck as an adult. I can go back to when I was six and I was sexually abused. I can go back to my, my, my teenage years while I was verbally abused. And I can continue to drag that forward with me for the rest of my life and blame everybody else. I was never a victim. I got victimized when I was a kid. Certain things happened, but I became a victimizer as an adult. Until I own my shit, feel that shame... Uh, process that and own the fact that I do have a lot to be shameful for and then help enough people to balance those scales. How am I ever going to get to the other side? Now, some people say, oh, that's the wrong way. Okay. As if the way most people are doing it today is working well. I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question, is the problem getting worse or better? The problem's not getting worse. Our response to it is. 
We refuse to hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. If you look at the world today, right? The pendulum has swung one way. We are arresting people for being drug addicts and committing crimes and then releasing them. Arresting them, releasing them, arresting them, releasing them. Arresting them, promise to appear, promise to call in, pre-trial event. If you arrest a drug addict and you release them eight hours later, do you really think they're going to appear or they're going to go get well? They're going to go get high because they're addicted to dope. What The metric we're not keeping is every time we release them, how many of those people go back out and start using again and die? Yeah. When you arrest us and we go to jail and we have to kick and it's not easy and 60 days later, we've been clean for 60 days and then you release us and you say, go to a program. What do you think the odds of us going to a program being successful are compared to releasing us the next day? Right. We're clean again. We're no longer physically addicted. The odds of success go through the roof. We aren't doing that anymore. Here's, Here's how I see it. If you are a drug addict and you've got $10 million and you are in the confines of your own home, comfortably ensconced at your own table, and you are getting high and you're not hurting anybody, there's nothing anybody can do. Hopefully, you decide to get some help and then you can go pay for treatment. Um, Or you're a drug addict and you're a criminal, right? When I get arrested, it does. it shouldn't matter that I'm a drug addict. It shouldn't matter that I'm a drug addict. I'm a criminal first. Arrest me and keep the community safe from me. I'll I'll digress. Jails and prisons literally saved my life. We keep thinking that jails and prisons aren't going to solve the problem. They're not. You can't solve the problem, but you can take the criminal off the street and keep the community safe from us. And then while we're there, we can get the help that we need and start that process while we're incarcerated. What we're doing nowadays is not that. We're arresting the drug addict who's completely spun out on drugs and then releasing them and then arresting them and then releasing them. The cops are frustrated, right? Completely frustrated. They don't want to re- they don't even want to respond to the calls anymore because they're arresting the same people over and over and over again. What we're doing isn't working. Jails and prisons serve a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Can I wow. can I throw out something too in response to your question? I think this is where the idea of a, a personal God that like treats us differently according to our lives and our circumstances is really helpful because like my experience <clears throat> was, and I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast too, but like high school for me, a uh, straight A student, uh, never had drugs, never had alcohol, wouldn't know where to get them, uh, never had sex, got scholarships, got into a great college and then went on my mission at 19 and believed for two years that I was the absolute scum of the earth, fell into a deep depression. Mm. Um, it, in many ways felt like, it would be better for me to be to be gone, to cease to exist. Um, and like, I don't think the answer for me was more tough love because like I had I had plenty of tough love coming from my, the, what I believed about God, yeah. you know? And so I ended up years later going to therapy and it wasn't like, it was not, I, I don't think it was a coddling experience. My first therapist spoke to me very truthfully yeah. and very straightforward, but that was the type of treatment that I needed and it actually did change my life. But I, so I like the idea though, that we can be we can be totally uh, personalized in our in our plans for yeah, for yeah, ourselves yeah. and for different people. It's like mm-hmm. we come from wildly different experiences, yeah. and like my my experience does not map onto the ex- the experience of your students. Yeah, like I don't and I don't think that would work, but vice versa as well. I, I love yeah. that. I ther okay. Just a couple of weeks ago, I went to a therapist to to meet the therapist because there's a, you know we want to bring therapy into some of our students that we just don't think we can get through to. Right, but we want to be very careful not to get them be- trapped back into that. Therapy has a role, especially with you. For me to sit here in front of you and know that your story right there, that you felt that worthless, that that's what therapy's for. But therapy didn't work for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Totally. I needed accountability. Yep. I led a completely unaccountable life. I was a criminal. And let me tell you something. And this is true for all drug addicts. Again, I don't care what anybody thinks listening to this. If you are a drug addict and you are committing crimes, you know you're doing it. I knew I was doing it. Every time I got out of jail or prison, if I was clean and sober, I knew when I got high again, I was going to go back to deal drugs. I made that conscious decision to do it. Drugs were not the problem. My decision-making was I needed to be held accountable to my decisions, take drugs out of the equation. Now for you, therapy is perfect. Our model wouldn't work for you 
nor do you need it. But when you come to us having been arrested 25, 35, 40 times, we need someone to put a foot in our ass and wiggle it around and make it really uncomfortable, (laughs) right? And call us on our behaviors and hold us accountable to those decisions. Because as soon as we get to the other side academy, we make similar decisions in there. Drugs not included. We're stealing socks. We steal a t-shirt. We pass a note to a girl. We've been there for a year and a half. She's got a 10-year prison sentence. We pass her a note and we say we really like her. But if she splits with me, she's going back to prison. I don't care about her. We don't even know the definition of care or love. We need to relearn those things. And that's hard to do in a, in a one-on-one setting in a therapy session Yeah, yep, absolutely. I, with our population. Yes, yeah, 100%. It, it's so illuminating. I appreciate that so much because I think this is one place where, you, you know, we all come to the table only with our own experience. And it's so easy to think that our experience should map onto everyone else's experience and that absolutely. we know the right way. And it, yep. it's just amazing to recognize that, like, no, there is definitely a polarity here. And all of one side or the other is going to be problematic for somebody. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's really a gift to, like, be able to balance it, that out a little bit. If I may. Yeah. You would think a guy like me with my background in drugs and incarceration would see things differently and I would be softer on it, but I'm not. Soft did not work for me. But to your point, hard doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Can you share yeah. like success rates? Do you, and do you know, and if we, I guess we define success maybe as true lifestyle change. Yeah. Like what is the other side academy's success rate versus a 30, 60, 90 day program? So your, your 30, 60 or 90 day program, the, the average treatment facility has a three to 5% success rate. Three to five percent. Oh my goodness! Um, and that's the truth. All of my students across the board, on average, have been about seven or eight of them. In some cases, fifteen. Now, can't blame all the treatment facilities. Maybe it's the student just not ready yet. Yeah. Um, the other side academy. If you stay for two and a half years, you have an eighty-one percent chance DCE, drug free, drug free, crime free, and employed. Wow. Uh, you stay three years or longer, it's eighty-nine percent. Those who stay four years or longer, it's upwards of ninety-five percent. If my average student has been arrested 25 times, what's the recidivism rate? 100%. (laughs) Listen, you guys, when I was going to prison, I'd go to prison, I'd get out, I'd get arrested, I'd get out, I'd get arrested, I'd get out. My recidivism rate's 100%. My average student's been arrested 25% or 25 times. They have a 100% recidivism. Yeah. They're just going out there and we can... So if you stay for two and a half years, 81% drug-free, crime-free employed. If you stay four or five years, it's upwards of 90% are not going back. We have like a 5% recidivism rate. Oh my gosh. If you stay four or five years. That's so incredible. It's fascinating. And why? Because we're long. Long is the key. Change take... Here's the thing. I don't like the term clean and sober. It drives me crazy. Because if you take Dave DeRocher and you put him in a jail cell and he's in a cell by himself as a drug addict for a year and there's no drugs, what am I? Not on drugs. I'm clean and sober. (laughs) What do I do the day I get out? Straight to the Flacco's house to pick up drugs. Change. I didn't change while I was in jail. If if Dave DeRocher is in a 30-day program with my history, I'm not going to change in 30 days. I'm not going to. It's impossible to change 30 years of behavior in 30 days. It takes time. Mm. I believe in whole person change. Go someplace that gives you enough time. Remember the liar, cheater, thief, and manipulator? Go someplace where you can learn to tell the truth impeccably. Learn to be accountable. Learn to have integrity. Where it becomes who you are, not just what we ask you to do. You experience whole person change. Guess what you get for free? Clean and sober. Mm. Buy the big bottle of shampoo. You get a little thing of conditioner. (laughs) Whole person change. Yeah, You get this for free. We're so focused on clean and sober that even people who are clean and sober are living really terrible lives. It's only a matter of time before they fall back into that using again. Yeah. Can we talk about too, and I think just because not everyone may know this, why you guys don't charge tens of thousands of dollars a month to your students and how much do you charge? So if you come to the Other Side Academy, it's completely free. You couldn't, what would it cost you to go to a two and a half year program? Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Besides. When I was going to jail, who was paying for me? The state. Taxpayers. Yeah. Taxpayer. Yeah, yeah. I was a burden. By the way, thank you for paying my rent while I was in jail. <laughs> I appreciate that. And when I was going to prison, who was paying for me? The taxpayer. Yeah. Yes. By the way, thank you for paying my medical while I was in prison. I manipulated the hell out of both of you. I knew what I was doing. I knew prison was the end result. And I went anyway. And you guys footed the bill. I appreciate you both. Gotcha. <laughs> right? I was a burden. When I go to a treatment facility that I can't pay for, Somebody else is paying for me. Did the state or the city or the county or the person paying for me ruin my life? I did. Shouldn't I be responsible for fixing it? 
When you come to the Other Side Academy, the day you get there, we have our own social enterprises that generate the revenue. We take no money from the government at all. City, county, state, federal government, which means they can't come in and go, two years, oh my goodness, that's too long. No, I feel you can bring a lot more people. Do it for 30 days. The current system doesn't work. So you come to the Other Side Academy, it's free. The day you get there, you become part of the solution, not the problem. I broke my life. I got to Delancey Street. I went to work on the social enterprises. I generated revenue that went back into the house. I fixed my life. I had skin in the game. I did it myself. I became responsible myself. Go to a treatment facility. Almost all the people, almost, operative word, almost all the people that go to treatment facilities aren't paying for it themselves. 65% of the people who start college, guess what they do? They drop out. Why do they drop out? They didn't pay for it. Yeah. Mom and dad did. They don't feel invested. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you, if you had to, if you through high school, if you had to save your own money or if you were able to pay for your going to college, let's just say you went to college as an adult, you're 30 years old and you paid for it yourself. What do you think the odds of you dropping out are? Very little. When, when, when you were given your first car at 17 years old, it was a hand-me-down. You didn't change the oil. You didn't clean the car. I have a funny story about that actually. You didn't, you didn't do those things. It was given to you. You didn't put the work in. But when you got a when you bought your own car, you financed it at twenty four years old. Did you take care of it? I did. Wow, it's different You're describing my when life. You, yeah, <laughs> to a T. It's different when you do the work yourself. Yeah, totally. And Actually, there's a, there must be this. I mean, yeah, there must be this greatly increased sense of of dignity when you're when right. you know that you're doing that right. as well. That must be a, some kind of little absolutely. Change. No one no one paid for me to go to Delancey Street. Yeah, I put yeah. the work in myself. Yeah. Again, I broke my life. I should be responsible for fixing it. Yeah. Well, I love, but I love this idea that like, it isn't your fault, but it's 100% your responsibility. Like it do, the fault doesn't. You just nailed it. Yeah. So that makes sense. You know, like, and there's, there's truth, there's, there's truth and not in both those statements. It's not my fault. It, it was, as a kid, I'm not responsible for what I dealt with when I was growing up. But as an adult, when I knew, when I could identify why I started, just like today, I choose not to use, I could have a long time ago too. I just chose not to. You know what I mean? As yeah. an adult, we are responsible to make adult decisions. Yeah. And wow. I just want to add that the concept that just keeps coming back to me is that the way that religiously we talk about the about repentance, because mm. I think sometimes we the way we talk about it so casually, it feels like saying sorry real quick, you know, and, and it feels like what you have just described is this this total metamorphosis, which I think is what is always meant by repentance. That it's really it's a change so deep that you become a different person. Yeah. And and I just love how you've illustrated and then, like what that should feel and like. And then give it back. Yeah. It's important to give it back. If I would have went to Delancey Street, I mean, think about what a selfish, um, please give me an acronym. <laughs> Either one of you. Jerk. <laughs> okay. Good word. What a selfish jerk. Th- beautiful word, right? Quote unquote jerk. Yeah. If I would have went to Delancey Street and beat a 22-year prison sentence and graduated on day 730, yeah. what a jerk I'd have been. I stayed for another six years on top of those two and gave back, right? And then fell in love with the process. Part of what we need to do, I, in my opinion, right? The balm for our wounds that we were talking about earlier is to give back. If, especially if you, if you know, if you can influence people and you have what it takes to, to show them a different way, how selfish would I? I was selfish when I got to Delancey Street. I wouldn't have been doing what I was doing. If I'd have left Delancey Street, not given back what I was given, I'd have been selfish again. I probably would have been using again. Wow. You think you, uh, you think you'll do this for the rest of your life? I know I will. Make no mistake about it. It's beautiful. The, uh, I think everybody is born with an innate gift. Some people, I couldn't, I can't play music to save my life, right? I love to listen to it, but I can't dance. It's just not a gift I was given. Some people are born athletes. Mike Trout's the best hitter on the planet, right? Um, Tom Brady, hands down, was the best quarterback, uh, of the modern era, if not ever, right? Not everybody can do that. He found his skill. He honed it. Musicians find theirs. They hone it. I think we all find our skill and and then, you know, it's up to us to hone that skill. I was fortunate that God made decisions in my life that led me down that path, that led me to this room today with both of you to do this. But during my time in Delancey Street, I found my passion. And I'm not saying I'm skilled at it. I'm just saying it's my passion. And uh, I'd like to think that I'm effective doing it, but I want to continue to get better and better and to affect as many lives as I can. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much. And it's just, it really is so inspiring to see how, how you're the hardest, most difficult, horrible 
things about your life have been alchemized to be something so beautiful and healing for so many I hundreds like the of word. other people. I call it alchemy, the the art of transformation. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. That's that's your story. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to also ask you how we can support. If you're self-sufficient, what can we do to support an organization so amazing? Well, the way you can support us, if we have a moving company called The Other Side Movers, we do about 300 moves a month. Two thousand wow, a month. A oh, month. Incredible. In 2018, we were at the Grand America Hotel. Uh, we won the Ernst & Young Entrepreneurs of the Year with a moving company ran by ex-felons and ex-drug addicts. So use our moving company if you need to move. You'll oh. go online, anybody who's listening, Yelp, Google Reviews, you will find hundreds and hundreds upon hundreds of five-star reviews. And for those of you who are listening, when was the last time you gave a one-star review to a moving company? <laughs> hundreds of five-star reviews because of the culture. We have two thrift boutiques, one on State Street, one in Mill Creek. The other side, Thrift Boutique, just one best of state. Uh, we have a storage facility in Murray also, moving company, thrift store, storage, all fit nicely together. And we have a small construction company called The Other Side Builders. All of those social enterprises generate the revenue, right? Um, two ways that you can find your way to The Other Side Academy. You can walk right through our front door 24 hours a day, sit on the bench, ask for an interview. If, if you we need inter- help, if you if you... Mm-hmm. If you want to become a student. Yep, want to become a student. Walk in, in, take a seat on the bench, ask for an interview. If we interview you and we accept you, you start that day. You need nothing. There's no red tape. There's no insurance red tape. There's no we need to get approval. If you show a genuine desire to do something different, we see a flame or we feel you have a flame in that belly that we can stoke and you're invested in your life, we'll probably take you. Hard stops. No sex crimes. We can't help that population Mm -hmm. that require different type of help. Uh, People who have committed arson, um, not the eight-year-old who burned his trash can in his room, but people who burn things down and have been convicted of arson, right? And those who are on psychotropic medication that actually need it. The other way you can come to us is you write us a letter from the county jail, just like I did Delancey Street. You're in the county jail. You're fighting your case. Dear Tosa, I really need some help. I'm in jail for the 33rd time. I'm on my way to prison for my fourth term. Could I please get an interview? And we'll interview you. And if we accept you, then the judge can sentence you to the other side academy like my judge sentenced me to Delancey Street. Those are the two ways you can come to us. So for those of you who are listening, if you have somebody in your family, friend, neighbor, loved one that need help, if they're out of state, we'll interview them over the phone. If they're in state, write us a letter from jail or come in and take a seat on the bench. What's the What's the address? 667 East, 100 South, Salt Lake City, 84102. All right. Thanks, Thank Dave. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Dave DeRocher. And a big thanks to Dave for coming on and sharing his story. If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really does help us to get the word out about Faith Matters. And we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening. And remember, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.